Hey folks, welcome to episode six of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability, the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Welcome, 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 folks, to the Empowering Ability Podcast, and this is episode six, and I'm your host, Eric Gall, and I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode on moving from uh, isolation to inclusion, and we've got some great guests lined up today. We have our, our first returning guest, and that's the guest from episode number one, Keenan Weller from Live Work Play in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and Keenan is the co-leader there and leader of communications along with his wife, Julie, and uh, along with Keenan, we've welcomed Al Condalusi onto the show today, and Al is the CEO of a non-for-profit called Class and out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, Class serves about 2,000 people and their families that are... Um, living with uh, disabilities. Uh, Al is also an author of seven books. He's an international speaker, and he also has a TED Talk. And Al and Keenan are a great one-two punch on this episode because Al brings in the academic side of social capital and brings in a lot of the research that he's been doing in the United States and Canada and shares those findings and, and really puts the empirical evidence behind isolation and inclusion and how that's different for different groups of people um, and, and notably those for um, the, uh, those living with uh, a disability. And Keenan brings in in the uh, application side. So he's uh, implemented a lot of these social capital um, processes and uh, methodologies into uh, the organization that he runs, Live, Work, Play. So he brings in um, the things that they've done and uh, in a story with um, one of the individuals that uh, that they serve at Live, Work, Play. So let's welcome in Keenan and Al. Hey, Keenan. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome back. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Eric. Excellent. Excellent. And we also have Al Condalusi. And Al's new to the podcast. Al, how are you doing today? Uh, Eric, doing fine. Thanks so much for um, the opportunity to have this conversation today. Yeah. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. So excited to have you both on the podcast today. I know you guys have both uh, done some work together and we'll get into that a little bit later in the show. Um, so I actually met Al and Keenan both uh, at a conference together and Al was uh, one of the keynote speakers and, and he told his inspiring story of how he got into doing work um, on social capital and with uh, individuals with disabilities. So Al, could you maybe just start off by telling us a little bit about um, your your story with your with your cousin Carrie. Yeah, sure, sure can, Eric. Uh, um, you know, I I, I hail from um, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> and grew up uh, here in the Steel City, uh, and still live here. In fact, um, live on a on a family hill uh, where. Um, uh, my family settled when they first came over from Italy, and and um, when when uh, when I was uh, born, there were eight Condalusi families who lived together up on on the hill. Um, and uh, one of you know my 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 best my best friend, my best buddy, 
um, in my childhood years and in, then into my adult years <clears throat> was my cousin, Carrie, um, who had Down syndrome. Um, and I never really knew that Carrie had Down syndrome until um, I, I, I realized that Carrie didn't go to school with uh, me and my other cousins um, and, and, and asked my mom about that. And, and uh, my mom told me that, uh, you know, Carrie was different and, and, and had this thing called Down syndrome. And uh, I was sort of taken aback by that because, uh, you know, I just just growing up with Carrie, just being together all the time, I, I had never really seen or, or discerned, uh, you know, any, any difference. And, uh, and, but as I became more alert and more aware of that, um, as we started getting older, um, I realized and, and, and observed um, how people really uh, treated Carrie, not in our family, of course, but, but when, when we would go places and do things uh, off uh, our, our family hill, um, Carrie was, was treated in ways that were, were, were pretty cruel. And uh, that really spurred in me this sort of um, this spirit of, um, of wanting to do something about it, wanting to, um, wanting to challenge uh, you know, this, this way that, that people in, in, in the community um, treated Carrie. And, and you know, one thing led to another. I went off to school, really, to uh, to uh, to study uh, disability issues, um, and um, all all along my career, after I graduated, my cousin Carrie has really kind of been a guide, almost a ballast to um, what we need to do uh, in terms of addressing the issues of disability, and and so. Uh, you know, I, I probably had the best teacher uh, with my cousin, Carrie, uh, in terms of understanding um, disability. Yeah, wow. As, as you tell that story, Al, it really paints a picture. And I see a very similar picture or story um, line with myself. Um, you know, me being in your shoes and my sister, Sarah, and um, realizing that my sister was treated a little bit differently outside of my family. So really have that connection that um, to you with your story with your cousin, Carrie. And thank you for sharing how your cousin, Carrie, has brought you down this path and now your work on um, social capital. So Al, would you be able to explain to us what social capital is? Yeah, yeah, Eric. Um, social capital um, is really kind of an, an interesting phrase, right? It's uh, um, it was co first coined in 1916 by an educator, a, a, a school teacher, who observed that the students that seemingly did better um, after they left school and better in life were students that weren't the, necessarily the, the brightest or the smartest uh, kids. It were the kids that were more connected. And he, this, uh, this, this educator began to uh, talk a little bit about um, the importance of relationships uh, in our lives. And, and since then, um, sociologists uh, really from around the world 
have um, uh, begun to examine uh, the value that people get from the relationships that they have in their lives. And, and so social capital as a concept remained primarily an academic uh, um, arena. It really wasn't used in a very popular way until a Harvard sociologist by the name of Robert Putnam uh, began to um, publicize, if you will, or popularize um, this notion of how relationships uh, impact our lives. And, and uh, Putnam began to codify, if you will, uh, by looking at past research as well as research he conducted himself um, and, and began to conclude that our relationships in our life, our social capital, if you will, um, literally uh, makes us happier, makes us healthier, uh, helps advance, helps us advance, helps us achieve more, enhances our self-confidence, and even has an impact on our life expectancy. Um, and this popularization, if you will, of social capital really um, really got me excited when I, when I first uh, came in in contact with with the principle of social capital. I was working on my PhD and and I was frustrated by uh, the notion that in spite of all the programs and services that were being offered to individuals with disabilities and their families, um, folks with disabilities were still you know, marginalized and devalued and limited and isolated. And, and um, you know, I saw that in my own family with my cousin, Carrie, and certainly with the families that I met as I, as I started my career. And, um, and then it dawned on me that what was missing um, in the lives of many people who experienced disability were relationships that folks who had disabilities, like your sister, Eric, or like my cousin, Carrie, um, they had obviously relationships with their family, but that's pretty much where it ended. And uh, that because of the way people with disabilities were served in segregated settings and in offset uh, programs, uh, they never really had opportunity to develop relationships with other people, with the world at large. And, um, and so, you know, in my own practice, uh, in my work uh, both at CLASS, a uh, nonprofit agency that I'm associated with in, in Pittsburgh, as well as my, my academic work at the University of Pittsburgh, we really began to, um, to begin to say, how can we uh, find uh, ways and means for people who experience disabilities to build more relationships, more generic relationships, not just with people with disabilities or just with their family, but with other people in the greater community. And so I really feel that this is the missing piece in disability service systems, is that uh, organizations don't really understand the power and potency of social capital. Now, we're discovering that that Organizations, some organizations are really awakening to this. I know, uh, you know, Keenan's uh, organization, Live, Work, Play, is one of the early adopters of, of these concepts uh, in Canada. And, and in Canada, there's really been this 
I think, wonderful proliferation of, uh, of human service professionals becoming sensitive or more sensitive to um, the, the impact of social capital. And, 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 and I think we're seeing a movement actually now really around the world um, in how social capital can, um, can create better opportunities uh, for people who experience disabilities. Right, right. I love that. So social capital is all about uh, relationships and uh, relationships and the impact that that has on on well-being, the positive impact that has on well-being, the, the stronger your, your relationships. Um, so that, that's probably a good point to bring in, in Keenan. So Keenan, would you be able to um, share a little bit about the work that uh, you and, and Al have done together and maybe um, even a starting point of why you started working with Al on, on social capital and, um, and building relationships. That's a great question, Eric. And I think if we go back about to the beginning uh, with Live, Work, Play and our, our first 10 years, a lot of our focus was on programs and program success. And I think after we'd kind of overcome the growing pains of a new organization and, and settled into things and had time to sit down and talk about it with a process really led by uh, my wife, Julie, asking ourselves, is, is program success the goal, which it's not? And if not, then, you know, what is happening with the human beings in the program? And uh, how do we know that, that uh, you know, they're having success in life? And how do we measure that in the first place? And so... You know, our initial response to that, we got pretty preoccupied with uh, things about rights and roles, which are very important. Uh, so what are people's rights? Uh, and, and, you know, social role valorization is certainly not uh, totally separate from a concept like social capital. But in the end, uh, people can they can have their rights to something and uh, they can have a role. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they're actually being uh, valued, valued and respected. Uh, for who they are or that they are happy and healthy. So, you know, we can talk about, well, you know, a person with Down syndrome should be able to play in the community ball hockey league and not be forced into a segregated ball hockey. But if they're being ignored or deliberately hit in the face with the puck or whatever it may be, uh, that's certainly not an inclusive outcome. And, you know, what we've learned through, uh, if I can boil down what I've learned through Al over the years, it's, well, Really, the measure is, did they get invited for beer after? Uh, and if not, then we haven't succeeded in the sense of uh, the relationships that have developed. And uh, our role of uh, connecting people, uh, we failed on that. And so I think a lot of the, you know, the early adopters in developmental services of talking about inclusion and uh, has been focused on you know, presence in the community, like the conference we were all at. So how do we go from presence uh, to contribution, to uh, people knowing your name, uh, respecting you for who you are, uh, including your disability, but also seeing the commonalities between people. And so we were on a search. Uh, you know, what do you call this? Uh, what, do you, what do you call this outcome? Um, and how do you know if, if it's working? And, and what, are the, what are the tools? And so uh, along came uh, Al and me, a lot of, in the first place, through video and watching these videos. And we're all sitting around going, ah, it's called social capital. Uh, this is what we have to do. And, and so, you know, how do we do it? And so that is kind of how it all got started, I, I would say, in a nutshell. Uh, and initially it was uh, kind of bringing in Al as a, as a trainer and, uh, you know, also just to have some really 
challenging conversations with our board and staff. And then the relationship has certainly uh, evolved from there to uh, where we're, sh- we're showing up in a complementary way in some of the same spaces and having these conversations and also trying to help others who are, you can tell by the numbers of people, uh, you know, asking for Allop here in Canada and the number of people that turn out, they're hungry for uh, this conversation. And the challenge now is how does it become part of organizational change? And so I think that's where it's very complimentary uh, conversation and discussion and moving this forward, because frankly, we have a system uh, that continues really to measure programmatic success. And so we have a social policy basis that says it's all about people having included lives in the community. And then we have, well, what's actually rewarded is not yet anything like that. And so we really are trying to push that envelope and um, you know, work with great community educators like Al to help other organizations as well as you know, families and the community at large to see that there is a different way other than this programmatic structure, which is still pretty entrenched, uh, even if the conversations have evolved to what we're talking about today. Right. right. Yeah, if I might add uh, to to that, I I really, um, uh, you know, Keenan just, uh, you know, really nailed it because this entrenched reality that's happened in, in, in human services um, ha- has really still this institutional sort of... Um, you know, impact or this institutional energy. Um, and that is, you know, the, 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 the notion of seeing people who have experiencing disabilities from uh, their deficits or from what they're struggling with and wanting to keep people safe, right? And, and so those two ingredients really create a powerful force of separation from community and separation from relationships other than with relationships uh, built uh, around professionals or credentialed people or or folks who are sanctioned uh, to be uh, around folks with disabilities. And 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 uh, that 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 sort of history is very, very deep rooted. So for organizations like Live Work Play to um, to, to to begin to um, make these adjustments is incredibly courageous because um, almost everything in the system sort of works the other way. So, uh, um, you know, I've, I've really been encouraged uh, by, I think, the, you know, the willingness of, of, of visionaries, you know, like Keenan and Julie and other folks, um, not just in Canada, but around the United States and in Australia and other, other places to begin to uh, to to challenge this institutional you know mentality of how people with disabilities uh, have historically and still today are are seen from. Mm-hmm. Right on. I just I told you guys I just got off the phone before this uh, podcast because I was talking to a parent and I'll just expressed almost to the to the exact letter the concerns they're having with uh, first of all the assessment process which is pretty much entirely deficits-based, you know, like things like the support intensity scale. Let's talk for hours and hours and hours about everything we can think of that's wrong with you. And actually, there's enough questions. We'll find things that were wrong with you uh, before you came in here. 
and then we'll assign you a score, which kind of sets are you high or low needs, and then this will this will align with some sort of a system's uh, outcome, and then we'll match you up. That is really far from what we're talking about here today, and so we live in that system and have been, you know, using some of the the tools that uh, Al and others have provided. Uh, if we have to, unfortunately, put people through that so they can get to us. How can we quickly flip this right on its head? Uh, and you know, it's, this is really about we want to get to know we want to get to know you, uh, and that's number one. And then we really want to get you connected to things that you care about and, and people who will share that with you. And I've had people I can tell you, um, family members in particular will just start crying. Uh, and you know, I've I've kind of come to see that this can happen. But initially, I was quite taken aback. Oh my gosh, I've upset them. And no, what it was is. In some cases, it had been decades since anyone in the in the service sector had asked a question or even, you know, I'd like to get to know your son or I'd like to get to know your daughter. And so that's pretty shocking and disappointing. And uh, we have to do better even as these sort of measurement and evaluation tools are, are still in this institutional mindset. Those of us in the system, we're still obligated to support people through that and to find ways to communicate. This is not actually what we're going to do together if you if you choose to work with us. Yeah, Keenan, thank you to to you and your wife Julie for the work that you're doing at Live Work Play and being an example to follow. Um and we've been talking a lot at the organizational level in terms of improving uh, and building relationships and this concept of social capital. Um and Al, you were getting at it the the beliefs that that we we carry from our history and our past. How do we how do we change the conversation uh, culturally or from a society perspective? And is there any examples out there that that we can lean on or leverage to help this movement go forward? Uh, absolutely, Eric. You know, I think the really the very first step is uh, we need uh, to have evidence that um, that people who experience disabilities are socially isolated, right? I, I think most families, uh, certainly in my own family um, experience and in my, you know, 47-year career, uh, the families that I've come to meet, uh, not only here in Pittsburgh in my organization at class, but but really families from from around the world, you know, you you hear um, their story, uh, or their stories of isolation. And I think the greatest fear that families experience is, um, uh, and, and, and the greatest perhaps uh, tragedy uh, in all of this is that their sons and daughters um, uh, will not have anyone in their life when their families pass on or when their families move on. Um, so anecdotally, and um, you know, uh, familially, we 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 know that people with disabilities are isolated. But but from an empirical point of view, Eric, we have not had any evidence at all about this in a formal way until just last year. And um, uh, we we've been working um, uh, an organization that I'm involved in, and at Keenan is as well. Uh, called the Interdependence Network, which is a international coalition of forward-thinking advocates 
who really who get it, who 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 understand what what Keenan just articulated um, uh, uh, a few minutes ago, banded together and said, "We need some evidence. We need to begin to get things published." And in the both the academic sector as well as the public sector, um, that really show clearly that uh, that people with disabilities are are isolated uh, or or engage uh, dramatically less than people who don't have disabilities. And so the Interdependence Network got together on this. We took um, a survey developed by Robert Putnam, who I mentioned a bit earlier, the, 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 you know, the sociologist from Harvard who really popularized uh, this notion of social capital. And Putnam and his associates created a uh, benchmarking survey that they used to measure uh, community engagement patterns for people without disabilities in the United States. Um, this project uh, uh, sampled some 30,000 people in both urban, suburban, and rural areas to really look at how engaged are, are people in their community. So we took this survey and we um, uh, allied with six organizations from around Canada and the U.S., and we, uh, we used the survey with 250 people with disabilities, all types of disabilities, Eric, not just intellectual disabilities like my cousin Carrie um, experienced, but folks with physical disabilities uh, like, my, like Parkinson's, like my dad had, mental health situations that people experience, um, other kinds of disabilities. And we conducted the survey uh, with these 250 people in six different uh, sites around the United States and Canada. Um, and we then took the data. The University of Toronto was our, was our academic partner. And uh, with, uh, with the University of Toronto, we, we crunched the numbers. And then we compared and contrasted what we found with these 250 folks who experienced disabilities with what Robert Putnam found in the U.S. and other sociologists in Canada had found in similar uh, surveys and, and, and examinations. And Eric, the, the responses were um, incredibly stark. Uh, the differential between the engagement patterns of the 250 people we looked at compared to what Putnam and sociologists in Canada found um, were dramatic. We wrote this up in an article that just was published last year uh, in 2016 um, in the Canadian Journal of Disability. And um, it's the first time there's ever been any kind of an academic exploration that begins to uh, show um, that people with disabilities are socially isolated. And now we feel as we continue to gather more evidence, we've since uh, done these surveys in Brisbane, uh, uh, Australia. I was just in Auckland, New Zealand uh, just a couple weeks ago working with an organization uh, in New Zealand called Imagine Better, and they're now doing a very similar examination. Um, we, uh, we've been working with a group in Ireland. Um, so we're, we're really looking at getting further evidence about uh, this isolation. Uh, and 
as unfortunate as it is, until you can prove something, you really cannot move public policy. Public policy is, is, is tied to evidence. And, um, and if you don't have the evidence, then it's hard to muster um, the, the, the public goodwill and the funding that might be necessary to begin to shift the equation from the institutional model that, that Keenan talked so, so well about, the deficit model, and, and really begin to shift gears and say, how do we help people build relationships? And, and what are the, the interventions that organizations like Live, Work, Play, and CLASS, and other uh, forward-thinking organizations around Canada and the United States can begin to employ to, uh, to really start to uh, change um, you know, the current reality of, of social isolation? So you've you've started to collect that em- empirical evidence, um, and and it's showing that there is this isolation. And intuitively, um, I think we all know, and the listeners of the podcast know that there is this isolation that exists for individuals um, living with a, a disability. So, what are some ways that um, families or individuals uh, with a disability can start to build that social capital, build those relationships? What are some practical things that, that uh, families and individuals can start to do? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's obviously the, the question of the, uh, of the day. And maybe I can kind of codify it in a, in a framework and then, and then Keenan can really speak to it um, with um, some of the wonderful experiences that they've uh, you know, uh, have been in developing um, in Ottawa and other other uh, forward-thinking communities in 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 Canada and, and in the United States. <clears throat> but clearly, um, Eric, you know this this approach um, really differs 180 degrees difference from the deficit perspective that Keenan had spoke about um, just a few moments ago, and that is. Um, this this approach really is a macro approach as opposed to a micro approach. Historically, people with disabilities have been seen from their deficit or have seen from their difference or from their inability. Um, a macro approach really begins to uh, you know broaden uh, the the perspective and and so we've kind of codified, a four-step process that you know we recommend, and we've been trying to embody here at class. I know that that uh, that that visionaries like Keenan and Julie and others have have begun to uh, incorporate into uh, their 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 work. But the, the the real start point, the first step, really um, centers around um, people's interests, affinities and passions. Um, Rather than thinking of my cousin Carrie from what she cannot do or what she struggles with, the the start point of a social capital agenda is who is Carrie as a woman and what does she like? What does she care about? What is she interested in? Um, So shifting from a deficit analysis to a cultural profile of assets is the first step. The second step is then beginning to say, where do these interests and affinities that Carrie has, where do they match up in the community? That is, 
for every interest a person has, there is a matching community, a gathering point of people in the community who like that same thing, who care about that that same thing. Um, you know, for me, for example, I I love to read, and I, I really enjoy jazz music, and uh, um, you know, I love I love to play golf. Right? These are things that I have affinity for. Um, so if I was looking to build more relationships, I would sort of begin to say, where does my interest in reading match up in the greater community? Where does my interest in golf match up in the greater community? Uh, so step two is finding the community venue or connection point um, where people gather around that point of similarity rather than to look at people's difference. So step two is finding the venue. Step three is an anthropological step, Eric. It is really looking more at what do what is expected of people when they um, when they look to join a club or a group or an association or a golf league or or book reading club. What's expected of people in those kinds of community settings? And um, and then really beginning to, um, to, to, to coach and to prepare um, the person that you're supporting to understand what those expected behaviors are. And then the fourth piece of the puzzle is really finding a gatekeeper. And when we talk about a gatekeeper, we're really talking about somebody already in the community, somebody indigenous, who literally can... Uh, facilitate the new person's uh, penetration. So let me let me just articulate this in a, in a in a much more simple way. If I was looking to move to Ottawa, Canada, from Pittsburgh, and I know how important relationships are, that they make me healthier, they make me happier, they make me um, achieve more, advance more. Then how would I build new relationships in Ottawa? Right. So step one. I would really begin to think of what, what do I like? What do I care about? Step two, I would look to find a setting where that, that, that interest is celebrated. And then thirdly, I would you know, really begin to say, what's expected of me when I join something new? I'm going to have to really understand the rituals and the patterns and the expectations of that community. But most important is this idea of the game. And the gatekeeper, somebody indigenous, somebody who's already in uh, the, the, the community that I would like to join or I would like to be a part of. And if I could find somebody who facilitates my penetration into that community, it makes my building friendships a little bit more easy. It doesn't make it so simple. It's, not, it's never a simple process. It's, it's always complex. And any of the listeners of this podcast know that when you talk about relationships, you know, it sounds pretty simple, but it's incredibly complex that, that there isn't one of us listening to this podcast today that has been always successful, ultimately successful in every um, community that they've been or every attempt that they've made at building relationships. So, so this is not easy stuff. It sounds simple, and maybe that's why people dismiss it, Eric, or maybe that's why it hasn't really been um, incorporated more quickly because it sounds so simple. 
get people like Keenan and Julie and others of us who are laboring in the vineyard, we know how complex this is. It is not easy. But there is this methodology and this process that I think if we, if we keep that in mind, it can begin to shift the paradigm from this de deficiency approach of how do we fix Kerry's problems to this broader notion of how can Kerry's begin to build friendships. Yeah, thank you. I, I love that. I love that. So, Keenan, did, did you maybe have an example or two of how you've put that model into, into action? Sure. Well, you try to do it every day, but I just want to support, you know, that is the, uh, a bit of the conundrum is the, the message in many ways is simple, which is why it's effective and, and, and people appreciate the message, but the work is really hard. This is much harder than running a day program, uh, getting to know a series of individuals, uh, what interests them, and then the whole new piece of work, which is uh, getting to know your community and uh, learning about new, you know, sub-communities uh, and making those uh, connections and, and doing the, the research. I mean, it's a lot of work, you know, what does it mean getting to know someone? Well, that's an endless process, but, you know, getting to know them well enough uh, where it's reasonable and responsible to start, uh, you know, trying to help them explore their their goals. But I, I think one of the first steps really with a lot of people is just, is, uh, you know, words like belief and trust come into play. So you've got family members there dealing with uh, a lot of painful experiences, uh, as is the, the individual. And so, you know, when you start talking to them about how, oh, no, we're, we're just going to match you up with some people who will respect and appreciate you in the community, you know, they may, they may roll their eyes so hard that it gives them a concussion because uh, it's not been their experience. And so communicating that, you know, it's not about this is for high-functioning people, uh, you know, it won't work for low-functioning people. There's a there's some work to be done with explaining that um, in, indeed we have had lots of experiences where you know non-standard communicators or other people that have had difficulty being appreciated in, in mainstream community venues. Uh, there is a whole process uh, that goes into supporting success, and that's where a lot of the hard work comes. And you don't you don't always see it. It's it's a kind of a research process, a feeling out process. So you know when someone identifies, I really want to be part of my local YMCA instead of, you know, shipping myself across the city to a segregated program somewhere. Well, why can't, you know, how about just going to the gym down the street? Well, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't begin and end with, with the membership. That's, that's a whole complicated uh, milieu that, that needs investigating right from what are the people at the front desk like? Um, how are they with their welcoming uh, process? Are they welcoming people? Would they be people that would take a supportive approach to someone that, uh, you know, may seem different uh, or would they call security? <laughs> so you can set someone up for some some pretty bad experiences if you don't investigate. And then within that venue, you know, what kind of classes are there? Is uh, is it a loud place? Is it a quiet place? And what is this person like? Uh, you know, would a, would a quiet, you know, would quiet yoga frustrate them? Uh, you know, would they prefer to be in a loud venue? Who are the natural welcomers in those classes uh, or environments and how could we identify them and you know what work should we do uh, before the person is even introduced to this venue to to mitigate some of these risks because i have to say 
has been very complimentary things said, but we, we fail spectacularly. Um, and that's part of the risk taking. The programs are, you know, there's a lot of control and you can, you can minimize uh, your risk to sort of systemic types of failure. You, you just fail overall in, in not supporting people appropriately. But in terms of supporting people to, to have a life and to, to build their social capital, uh, that's a lot of risk because you can't control the community. You can only seek to understand it and connect with it and be a part of it. And so I think that is also important to keep in mind. So I, I don't, I'm trying to think of a, a particular success. Maybe the one that's public is a, a gentleman named uh, Chris Jones, who really wanted to be uh, involved in soccer and actually hadn't, wasn't really enjoying. He was involved in some, some uh, special needs type of soccer and it clearly wasn't working out. And we thought, well, what else is there? And we started looking around, and there's some new. This is a new thing too that I think, you know, Al would be is excited to see that's coming up. You know, we have like the meetup sort of concept that's grown in the mainstream society. You know, meet up with people, like-minded people, for a Steelers game, or could be anything really, photography. And so, you know, that phenomenon has given rise to new sorts of uh, communities, such as a sports community that has as their mission, you know, everyone can play sports kind of thing. And so there's two of those that have come up in Ottawa. And I know we connected uh, Chris with uh, Ottawa Rec Sports. And, you know, we were set in to, to go and kind of have a whole meeting with them about, you know, we might have some people with differences and, and uh, you know, we'll help you with some strategies. And, and really, uh, in a polite way, they were kind of like, this is the whole idea. Uh, this is all about everybody playing sports and we don't need any convincing and bring it on kind of thing. And so we still had our doubts, uh, but they found uh, they found Chris a, uh, a soccer team, and we had worried early on we'd really screwed up because you know soccer fields are in demand and some of these games are really late, and we thought oh man we've we've messed up uh, there's not even a bus that runs when this game finishes and we don't even know what happened to him I didn't realize so we're all in a panic and you know get a hold of somebody from uh, from the league and. Oh, yeah, no, he went out for beers, and then they drove him home. And went, oh, okay. And so we started identifying there's a number of these uh, relationships have developed and that he's not just, uh, you know, on the list of people on the team. He's part of the team. And so just like anyone else, everyone got a ride home that night. It wasn't just Chris because he has a disability. There are some people that drive, and there's some people that don't, and there's some people that are drinking, and there's some people that weren't, and they sorted it all out, and he was just a part of that. And so to me, that's just like your, you know, your 11 out of 10. And it wasn't really much that, uh, that Live Work Play did. Uh, it was just the way that, uh, that those people organized themselves. And so we're always – on the hunt for that and but sometimes it's not there and so you're working to create it and i look at you know a partner like the ymca where they've actually worked on their own policies and uh you know they're truly a partner of ours where you know if someone that we support was experiencing a challenge they would reach out to us um and vice versa and so you know those sorts of uh, relationships are huge and then the, the wonderful thing that happens is, you know, you go from sort of you can settle with, OK, they're in uh, and, and everything's fine. But it's how do we go to the next level? So, you know, once people are, I'll say, you know, accepted in an environment, what opportunities are there for to elevate their contribution? And I think that whole reciprocity piece that I know uh, Al gets really excited about. And it really is when you have reciprocity 
between people. That's when, you know, the social capital is really bubbling. Uh, it's not just that, oh, yeah, we, we tolerate this person or we accept them or we think they're cute or whatever. It's they are a contributing member of whatever the particular community is. And they're valued as an individual for their interpersonal relationships in the group as well as their contribution to the group as a whole. And that's where we have to constantly, you know, it's a struggle to remind ourselves uh, we're not done just because it's going okay. It's what are the opportunities, the emerging opportunities to support this person uh, to advance in ways that would make them happy. That's great. And one of the things that's standing out for me is um, that this is is hard work. (laughs) And it's hard because the individual has to be vulnerable and they have to be, you know, there's some element of change involved and that's hard for everybody. And I love how Al has laid out that four step, four step process or framework for, for us to follow. And Keenan, you shared some great insights on how you're helping to um, assist with that social change, um, help individuals uh, to be vulnerable and help them with that change and help with the, um, the social inclusion, uh, piece of it as well. And, and the results that, uh, that you're getting sound like they're, they're great. And I really appreciate all the guy, the work that you guys are doing, um, with your respective organizations in this space of social capital and, and helping to push this movement forward and, and with a, with a greater cultural change. And, and I think that's amazing. Um, so I want to respect your, your time today. Um, so, um, was just, wrapping up here um keenan how can folks get in touch with you um for a conversation or to to access um you know some maybe some of this or learn more about the services at uh, live work play yeah i mean i'm almost as googleable as al condalusi so it's easy to, <laughs> <laughs> easy to find me but uh, liveworkplay.ca is for people that like to do their uh Online research is, is a, an easy way to get started, or you can give me a call at 613-702-0332. Okay, great, Keenan. And uh, and Al, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, to learn more about you, or to access some of these great resources that you've mentioned? Yeah. Um, well, Eric, you know, certainly uh, let, let me answer that. But, but but before I do, I just wanted to underscore one other thing that I think you're, you know, the podcast the listeners would would um, uh, understand. Although today um, we're discussing social capital, uh, social isolation that people with disabilities experience and how social capital uh, really becomes a, um, you know, a, 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 a process, an anecdote, if you will, to, um, uh, to social isolation. But it really is important for the listeners to appreciate the breadth of, of isolation. We know that social capital becomes the core issue for people who are leaving prisons and have been disconnected from society because of a crime, or elderly, folks that are getting older and their friendship circles are, are, are uh, dissipating and uh, they're losing friends, or, or people experiencing mental health uh, conditions. Uh, uh, immigrants, people new to a country, uh, refugees, um, uh, veterans from military experiences where their primary social capital was their band of brothers in the military, and now they're leaving the military, and they're really coming into situations.
situations where they where they're isolated. So so the the concept of social capital is a broad human service human uh, you know um, r- uh, r- relationship phenomena that I, I really think has applicability in so many different ways. But if people are really interested in learning more about social capital and and its application in 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 in, in almost universal ways, um, you know, I would I would ask them to visit uh, my website, uh, which is alcondelucci.com. That's just my name, A L C O N D E L U C I, dot com, and. On the website, we have some videos, uh, my TED Talk, uh, uh, some resources, information on books that I've written. I, I, I've tried to uh, not just talk about this concept, but write about it and share um, share ideas in as many mediums as we possibly can. And so I have eight books. We have a book that just came out um, two years ago called Social Capital, The Key to Macro Change. And in that book, we we, we review the four steps of uh, building relationships, and that book can be can be found on my website. But let me let me just a- end with um, uh, the website of the Interdependence Network, which is um, uh, which is www.buildingsocialcapital.org. Just the 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 word no spaces, buildingsocialcapital.org, and on that website. Um, you get introduced to really this um, this international community of practice of of uh, good people, forward thinking people uh, like Keenan and Julie and 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 others who are um, hungry to share ideas, to compare notes, and to contrast. So we really appreciate Eric you you uh, taking time to highlight uh, this concept of social capital on your podcast. Uh, certainly know of your personal um, interest uh, by way of, you know, your own family experience um, in in recognizing the, the, the negative throes of isolation and wanting to, to do something about that. So thanks so much for this uh, invitation to uh, participate today and uh, to be a part of this. I love working with Keenan. We've been partners and, and allies for many years now. And and um, so this has really just been uh, been a wonderful opportunity and great fun. Fantastic. And I appreciate both of you coming on the show. I will list uh, all those resources that have been mentioned so far uh, in the podcast in the show notes. So uh, folks uh, listening can simply uh, access those uh, just with the click of a mouse. Um, so yeah, so Keenan, Al, I am super grateful for you guys coming on the podcast today and, uh, and hope to talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Keenan. Wonderful day. Okay. Thank you. Folks, I really hope you enjoyed the conversation today on social capital and really moving from a deficit mindset to an abilities and capability mindset. And Keenan and I really highlight how important social capital is, how important relationships are in our lives. And Al really spoke to how relationships are key to our well-being, our success, and our longevity. And this isn't just for individuals impacted by or with a a disability, but it's for everybody. It's for you. It's for me. And um, this 
isolation conversation that we were talking about really doesn't just impact folks with a disability. It impacts, um, in, you know, veterans, people coming out of prison, the elderly, as Al explained. And these relationships are super important. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of families talking about housing and, and, and the housing crisis. But I think it's also important to start to consider where social capital and relationships fit into that conversation as well. The scope is, is bigger, bigger than housing. Who's going to be there to love uh, your loved ones when you're no, no longer there? So really focusing on those relationships. And um, I love the, uh, the model that Al provided that can start to give us a bit of a framework to follow. So the four steps, the first one, really leaning into what that person's interests and passions are, and then two, figuring out where in the community those activities exist. And then third, start to help that individual understand what those expected, uh, how people are expected to um, be in, in those activities in the community. And fourth, finding that local gatekeeper that Al described or facilitator to help facilitate that um that relationship and that engagement within the community. And uh, I really love how Keenan highlighted that this work is hard and it takes a lot of vulnerability and there's change that's involved and that's hard for everybody. Um, so just keep that in mind and, um, and how it's important for uh, someone to help facilitate this process and, and to coach individuals through the process. Um, so I've got the resources up on the Empowering Ability website that were mentioned in this podcast, uh, and the website is www.empoweringability.org, and you can find the link to the research study that Al was uh, talking about and Al's TED Talk, as, long, as well as a few others. Uh, we welcome you to join the Empowering Ability community at uh, over on Facebook. Just search for Empowering Ability, and we welcome you into the conversation. And join us next week with our guest, Karen Chambers, who's the executive director of the Bob Rumball Center for the Deaf. And uh, we learn about all the great work that they're doing, and we really dial in on the social enterprise that uh, Bob Rumball has. Um, and interestingly enough, it's a, it's a driving range that uh, I visited as a kid that has transformed into a, a social enterprise. So excited to talk about that with Karen. And big thank you to all the listeners out there. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast and we welcome any feedback that you have and thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.